but it's so good to hear the people of God praise him with gusto and loud. So praise the Lord for that. But uh, amen. So we're returning to the book of John uh, this morning. And uh, so excited to preach uh, this message today. Uh, I love this chapter uh, of scripture. I love this wedding at Cana. And, and what I believe it, it teaches to the people of God about God and about us and about what Jesus has come to us. But just a little bit of background, just a second about the book of John as a whole. We try to do this every time we, we talk about the book of John. John wrote, who's a disciple of Jesus, he leaves himself unnamed in the book. He frequently refers to himself as the one Jesus loved or other little titles like that. But in chapter 20 and verse 30, he spells out for us why he wrote the book. Okay, that's what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we're going to see the first sign this morning that Jesus performed. And as we march through the book of John, we'll see all, we'll see all the rest of them as well that, that he used to the signs, the miracles, if you will, that he did to prove that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that the first chapter talks about that he is. And the, basically the summary of the whole first chapter of John, we call it the prologue, just like any good prologue, is to spell out that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He wasn't the first creation of God. He is the eternal Son of God. He was always from eternity the Son of God, never need to be created. And he has taken on human flesh, both God and man, the glorious God-man. And he has come as the Messiah and the Redeemer to solve our greatest problem. That is that the God will at any moment empty out his full cup of wrath on our soul for all eternity if we don't yield to the sacrifice that Jesus has given us. That's John. Okay? That's John. And what's beautiful about it is through the, through the story of Jesus Christ, God slowly reveals to us more and more and more of his precious character. And what I am proposing to you today is that both you and I perhaps need an aspect of who we think God is rewired. And this passage in specifically, specific, may help us to in rewiring some of the things that we think about God. The title of the sermon is that the gospel offers better wine. The gospel offers better wine. Now, this would be a challenging sermon to preach in a Baptist church, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, you guys have all heard the joke about the differences between Baptists and Presbyterians. Is Presbyterians will talk to you in the liquor store, right? Um, I was with uh, some folks last night, and a lot of my, some of my best good Baptist friends, and, and they were talking about, they were talking about pastors and wine and different things like that, and I just was like, whatever. You know what I mean? Um, in fact, it's a really funny story real quick. I remember a woman that, uh, who was, her husband was trying to get um, her to come to church. And so she finally says, yes, I'll come to church with you. And they go to the Sunday school class. And y'all know Southern women, right? They're like always uber joyful to see you. And like, oh, it's so great to see you. It's all over here. You know, some of them get really excited. They shake like, oh, it's so good. Let me see you. All that kind of stuff like that. And, and uh, so they're there and they're listening. And then so she gets warmed up. And she's ready to, she's ready to say, and they, they're just sharing, you know, some of their favorite things to do. And it comes around to her, and she's ready. And she says, well, one of my favorite things to do is go, to my go with my husband to the wine country and taste all the wine. And then the class goes, dead silent, awkward tension. And they're like, well, 
let's go study the Bible right now, you know, that kind of thing, right? So anyway, but the point of this passage is not to have a synopsis on what the Bible teaches about alcohol and stuff like that. We might do that a different day. Here's the point. In this passage this morning, wine is a gift of God for celebration. And the interesting thing about this passage is that the first sign or the first miracle that Jesus does to show that he is the eternal son of God is to make a bad celebration better with the best wine. It's the first is number one. It's the first one he does. Okay? Now, the question that we're asking today is what does that have to do with us? I'd like to make this argument to you today that your view of God affects three things in your life in particular, and there may be more, but let me just ask, say, three. One, your view of God affects how you interact with him, how you worship or don't worship him, how much you're interested in who he is and whether or not you're willing to obey, okay? Number two, your view of God affects how you feel about yourself. Who are you? You, your own person? Are you a child of the living God? Are you worth God's blood? What you believe about God affects how you feel about yourself. And then three, what you believe about God affects how you interact with the world around you. Those are three really big categories, yeah? My question is, and I think is the most important question that you can ask yourself, is what do I believe about God? And the answer to that will change everything change everything. And this passage challenged one of what I believe is one of our most natural but inaccurate feelings. Natural but inaccurate feelings about what, who God is. I think we are all born skeptical of God's goodness. I think it's part of our fallen condition as sinners. We struggle to believe that he's good. We struggle to believe that he cares. We struggle to believe that he's powerful enough. Uh, naturally, we have the tendency to believe that God is distant, cold, stingy, and maybe even uninterested. Most people I talk to when, when I'm talking to them about God, maybe they're in the process of figuring out what they believe, which is some of my favorite people to talk to in the whole world. Love it. Love it. They'll say things like this. My baseball coach said this to me one time. That God doesn't care about me or my problems. That they, I don't, I, that in other words, when he says that, that, that God is too big or awesome or the problems of the world are too massive in comparison to mine. So, so God doesn't care necessarily about me and my problems. Now why, why do you and me, because I'm sure you felt that at some point in your life, everybody sitting in this room. Why do you say that? I think there's two main reasons. Number one. It's because you believe God is distant or powerless or both. And number two, because if you really did believe that he was close, then you'd have to change. Or one of the things that we're all tempted to believe is that God is a killjoy, cold. We believe this because we have suffered or watched other people suffer, and we believe that God may be the cause of that suffering. God is not the cause of suffering. Sin is. Maybe your sin has manifested itself into personal suffering, but all suffering is an ultimate manifestation of the fact that God's perfect world was destroyed by sin. 
The other truth is this, that you never suffer without a purpose. There is always a purpose of God in that. But we struggle, right, with this idea about God. What I want to do today is reconcile your view of God with the view of God that's presented here in this passage. A God who brings the better wine to the celebration. Is this your God? Because he is the real one. And your life will be transformed if you believe and trust in who, you, who he actually is. So I invite you, look at him in his word. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servant, Fill the jars with water so that they fill, so they fill them to the brim. And he told them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we look at this passage this morning, Lord, we would ask um, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Big idea this morning is simple to understand, hard to believe, that God is lavish. God is lavish. In his grace, God is lavish in the gifts that he gives to us. God is lavish in, in, in the goodness that he displays. And God is lavish in his glory. Lavish means to bestow something in generous or extravagant qualities on someone else. Do you believe that about God? Really? That God is lavish? I bet you don't. There's two types of the lavishness of God that people are selling, and that's not the lavishness of God found in this passage. The first is called the health and wealth gospel. It's a type of lavishness which says if you give God your money and devotion, then he will make you rich and healthy and give you everything you want. It's not true. More often than not, this is true. More often than not, people who love and obey God and, and live their life are healthier and wealthier and happier than people who don't. That there is blessing from being obedient to who God is. That is true, but it is not a guarantee. Hear me? Okay? 
Job is an example of that, faithful man. If you don't have it, then there's a good reason for it. Because God didn't want you to have it in this time. The other type of happiness that people are selling or lavishness of God that that people are selling that you're not going to find in this passage is is that happiness, that that you always be happy and never in need if you trust in the Lord. That's not what he's saying either. This is what he's saying. He's saying that Christianity, that the God of the Bible has the market on happiness and joy and hands down, there is no comparison or caveat or qualification needed. That what really matters in this world is peace and honor and character and joy and happiness and relationship and security. And you can only give that from God and he is lavish with it. That's what this passage teaches. Three points. God gives lavishly to those who ask. God God's lavish love is heightened in the new covenant, and God lavishly gives us his glory. God lavishly gives to those who ask. God's lavish love is heightened in the new covenant, and God lavishly gives us his glory. First, God lavishly gives to those who ask. So here's the context of the passage I just read to you. There's a wedding in Canaan. The previous passage, Jesus calls his first six disciples. Um... And Andrew is instrumental in that, and Philip is instrumental in that. They use their spheres of influence and get people around Jesus. And Jesus does the hard work of changing their hearts, and they they submit to want to follow him as their great master and teacher. That's the first six. And then he takes that band, and they go to a a wedding that they've all been invited to. Okay, They go, they spend a couple days traveling, uh, because they didn't have cars. They spend a couple days traveling, they show up. Canaan is pretty near. We don't know exactly where Nazareth might have been. We have some good ideas. But Cana is pretty near where Nazareth most likely would have been. So it's around the same type of people that Jesus probably grew up with, maybe some relatives and friends and so on and so forth. Jesus has invited his first, the six disciples, and they show up to the wedding because they were all invited. And his mom, Mary, is at the wedding. And the situation that's, that's a problem is that during the wedding, they run out of wine. Here's a couple notes culturally back in these days about weddings that, that we need to know, right? Like that weddings, for example, back in these days lasted, some of them, an entire week. It's mind-blowing to me as a, as a father of two daughters, right? You know what I'm saying? Like um, the wedding lasted a whole week. The groom's family foot the bill. Interesting. Um, and that guests could arrive at any time during the week, all right? And that running out of wine or other provisions was a huge embarrassment. It was a huge embarrassment in this culture, right? And so Mary uh, approaches Jesus about the problem. Now, what's interesting about Mary here, just, just what could be the situation that's going on here, is Mary might be widowed at this point. Her husband, Joseph, may have died. Okay, we, after Jesus is at the temple when he's a child, uh, learning from the teachers, that's the last time we hear about Joseph in the scriptures. We don't know that, but perhaps, because we never hear about him again, he, he's died. In, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is referred to as the carpenter, not simply the carpenter's son. So maybe he's running the family business now as the, as, as the firstborn. And so she's, maybe she's working the wedding. Maybe she's helping out with the wedding, or maybe it's just someone she knows real well because she knows this detail. You wouldn't let this detail of the wine is running out out to many people because you wouldn't want to be embarrassed. Mary knows why. Maybe she's working. Maybe it's a relative. We don't really know, right? Anyway, Mary is leaning on her firstborn son, 
perhaps like she's done so many times in Jesus. But I think there's also something more going on here. All the miracles that surrounded Jesus' birth. At the end of all of them, when the shepherds leave, after they come and, and witness Jesus, it says in Luke 2, 19, that, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So maybe something going on behind Mary's request here. Jesus is not a rich man. It's not like he could go out and buy more wine. She comes to him, though, to solve the problem. So verse 4, he, Jesus responds, dear woman, some of your translations may just say woman, and it looks like in that verse that it looks like that maybe Jesus is kind of insulting his mom, like woman, what are you doing talking to me like that, right? The, the Greek is a difficult translation. The best translation that we might understand in the South is if, if someone responded to you like sweet lady, right? It's, it, he, he's not, he's not, it's a soft rebuke almost. He's not using a term of endearment, the mother term for endearment. He's not saying mom or mother, but he's also not saying woman. You see, it's almost like sweet lady. So there's this kind of soft rebuke there. Slight, it's polite, but it's soft. We'll talk more about what he says later in verse 4 about it's not the right time. But it's interesting, he says, listen, it's not the right time. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Not the right time, and then Mary turns. Mary doesn't defy Jesus. He just simply, she simply looks to the servants and says, just listen to what he says. Listen to what he says to do. And then in verse 6 through 10, Jesus does the miracle of turning the water into the best wine, potentially, that this wedding planner had ever seen before. Now, here's the point that I want to make here, is that Jesus responds lavishly to someone who asks in humility and Jesus responds lavishly to someone who asks in humility and in faith. Most of Jesus' miracles, with the exception, in my mind, of the demoniacs, the ones who are demon-possessed, who couldn't ask, most of Jesus' miracles are a response to faith and a request. John chapter 4, a little bit later, an official begs Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus just says, your son was healed. And he was that moment. Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman comes and begs Jesus to heal her daughter, and Jesus says, listen, I can't do that right now. I came for the Jews first, and it wouldn't be good to give the children's food to the dogs, right? He's calling her a dog in, in, in that sense, right? And her, her response in faith and humility was even the dogs get the scraps from the table, and Jesus says, your daughter's healed. Humility a paralytic is lowered, a man who could not get to Jesus, is lowered from the roof to be healed by Jesus. And in Mark chapter 2, it says that Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends, humility, and request. What do all these miracles have in common? They ask, they believe, and who he was. The first problem that we have is that we do not believe that God is a God who gives at lavishly and therefore we don't ask. God has capacity. One of the problems that you have is you don't believe that God has the capacity to be lavish. And then secondly, you don't believe he has the interest in being lavish. First, the capacity. I'm about to teach our, our potential officers the Westminster Confession of Faith. Really excited about that. 
Josh will be preaching a good bit in the coming weeks because I'm still working on that. It's, it's going to be a great thing for us to go through. But I just want to read you the, the chapter 2, um, paragraph 2 of the Westminster Confession of Faith where the, the about God. Just listen to this. This is who God is. This is a summary of what the Bible has to say about God. You ready? God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessing in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory by, in, and unto them. God is all-sufficient in himself and has no need of anything else. God did not create us because he needed us. He is all-sufficient within himself, not standing in any need, it goes on to say. He, al- he is alone the fountain of all being. Of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and he hath the most sovereign dominion over all of them. That's who God is. Capacity? He has it to be lavish. God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, everywhere, and at all times. Capacity. His capacity is unlimited and beyond your wildest imaginations. This passage, did you, did you check it? Maybe your translation is different than mine. Each of these jars can hold 20 to 30 gallons. That's like 150 gallons of wine. 150 gallons of wine. Just imagine stacking up milk jugs, 150 of them. Right? You, you ever go into a doctor's office or a seafood restaurant and see these huge tanks? A lot of them are 150 gallons. Did Jesus do some kind of magic little incantation? Did he do a little dance, say a couple magic words? No, he just said, go take it. And it was. 150 gallons of wine. A lot of times... Uh, Wine for them was like sweet tea for us, right? And they would water it down. And uh, as the feast went on and, and they were running out of wine, they would continue to water down the wine. And it, it may be that the reason the master of the banquet is shocked is because it doesn't taste like there's any water in this wine. Full tilt, 150 gallons. The other thing that we struggle with is that God doesn't have any interest in being lavish. But when the world was created in Genesis chapter 2, was there a lack of things needed? Mm -mm. We'll talk a little bit more about God's lavish character. But the specific application for us is, do you ask of God? And let's think for a minute about why we don't. The summary of what Jesus teaches about prayer in the scriptures is this, one word, ask. The belief behind the ask is is when you ask someone for something, you believe two things about them, that they have the power to grant it and they want to grant it because they love you. The other reason you don't ask is because you believe that your prayer is too petty and that God is too big and he's in control of all of the world and that God has bigger problems to solve. There's hunger, war, poverty, illness, the list keeps going on, and that he can't simply deal with with your request. But let me say this. You know the big problem in this passage isn't war or poverty or illness. 
It's embarrassment. And he takes this lavish care. He cares about everything about you. Thinks about you all the time. That's what the scripture says. Willing. You know, it's interesting. Um, God responds to our prayers lavishly, even the small things. He cares about the small things because he knows that they're not small to you. And you are not small to him. Uh, My mom gets on to me sometimes because I don't remember half of the awesome things she did for me when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, all the, you know, you're a mom and you, you know, we do this to our kids and we know they won't remember. You just do so much and they don't realize it. You you don't realize all the stuff that you do for them. But you know what I remember? Without a shadow of a doubt, that I was well loved. All those little things added up. That's God. Ask. Ask. He's appropriately lavish. And to point number two, God's lavish love is heightened in the New Testament. Jesus, throughout this book of John, teaches that something new is coming. That there's a heightened relationship with God, a heightened covenantal relationship with God that's, that's coming, and, he, and it demonstrates his lavish nature. And we get a hint of that here. Okay? It's not a full-scale teaching about the new covenant in this passage. We do get a hint about what that's going to be. God has always de- related to his people through covenant, which is a binding legal agreement between God and men where God binds himself to a creature, to us. Okay? And there are several throughout the Bible. God makes a covenant with Adam. I'll take care of you. Don't eat from that tree. Then he makes a covenant with Adam when he says, listen, I know you sinned, but I'm going to fix the problem. Then he makes a covenant with, um, with, with Noah. I won't destroy the girl, earth again. Then he makes a covenant with Abraham. You don't have any children. I'll make you the father of many nations. Then he makes a covenant with Moses, and he gives the people of God the law. Then he makes a covenant with David. He says, I'm going to turn you into a kingdom, a kingdom like the world has never seen before. God is always making lavish promises and fulfilling them to his people. Out of Abraham, this man who was faithful and yet sinful but fatherless, he makes a great nation. That's lavish. Moses, God, he, God, God gives his laws and his worship so that his people can feel clean and right with him. Even in the midst of their wickedness, that's lavishness. God, God was perfectly just in wiping out the world as many times as he wanted to, but he promised Noah, I won't do it again. David, he promises David that there's a kingdom that he's going to build. And under Solomon, David's son, it was the most lavish nation the earth had ever seen in terms of the blessing that it had. And what Jesus is coming to say and gives us a hint of in this passage is that the new is better. And that God's track record with the covenants in the Old Testament is unbelievable. You might even call it lavish. And Jesus steps on the scene and then his first miracle says, you ain't seen nothing yet. What I'm about to do. He takes these jars for purification, symbolic of what the old covenant was. Outward signs for purification to make you outwardly clean. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands ceremonial according to the traditions of the elders. What Jesus is doing is he's ushering in a new era of how God is going to deal with his people. 
a new covenant in his blood that would change how man and God would live together and would bring us one step closer to the garden of Eden. In Hebrews chapter 9, I was actually reading it this week in my time with the Lord, we read this in verse 9, that this is an illustration for the present time, that is the Old Testament sacrificial system, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clean the conscience of the worshiper. You hear that? The old covenant couldn't clean the conscience. This new one, it can. Okay? All right? And then, and then listen to this. I'm, I'm about to blow your mind. God is so lavish, he turns water into wine, not just a little bit, but 150 gallon, not just any wine, but the best wine, not watered down. The old covenant, God made a gracious and lavish way for his people to be with them, but it was still at arm's length. God was with them in the, them in the tabernacle. He was with them when they built the temple. But there was a big old curtain that separated the people from God. And only one man a year could go into that. And he had to have blood before he went in. And Jesus Christ in the new covenant tears the curtain down and brings the presence of God into your soul right now. To cleanse you from the inside out. Better wine. God brings better wine. Hebrews 9 again. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremony unclean sanctifies them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, clean our consciences? The stain, the guilt, the shame, it's washed away from the inside out. Listen to me. God doesn't simply tolerate you. He brings you into the To bring us into sweet communion with him. God is not a killjoy. A distant. That's not who he is. He's lavish. And he has the market of lavishness. He's a better wine and a sweet communion. And this first first miracle gives us a taste of that. That the new covenant is better wine and has the ability to clean us from within. So let me bring this down a little bit. Let me talk to you specifically in this room who are are 25 and under. It's going to apply to everybody, okay? Let me talk to you guys, that the the young folks in the room, just because there's something in your ear all the time. It's in all of our ear, but it's particularly in your ear. You are tempted to believe that wealth is the key to lavish living, that free sex is the key to lavish living. That vacations and entertainment is the key to lavish living. What I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart is that is a lie. You're also tempted to believe this. That Christianity is the right thing, but the boring thing. That Christianity can give you righteousness, it's the good thing, but it's not lavish fun, and it can't make you whole. That you can be holy, but not enjoy it. That you can have what you need, but listen, God's stingy, and he's only going to parcel out the basics. And it's sinful to want more. That you can be clean, but don't expect too much. This is a lie. God is and, he, and you can be clean and enjoy the sweetest of joys, the best relationships, the greatest wealth, and the truest happiness only in Christ and in service to him. 
Let's take the big three, sex, money, and power. You would think, potentially, that the world has the market on sex. You're wrong. Sex is beautiful, powerful, and pleasurable, and safe, and can draw you into the most profound closeness with another human being, but only within the bounds of the one who created it. Only as he designed it. So go ahead. Try it with multiple partners and feel the emptiness it brings. Try homosexuality and feel the shame it brings. Try pornography and feel the cheapness, dirtiest, and loneliness it brings. Drink the poison water, but Jesus brings better wine. God brings better wine. Money. You think that you can find the best treasure outside of God? Go ahead, stack up that paper. Do whatever you can to, it takes to get it. Sacrifice the most important relationships. Lie, cheat, steal, it doesn't matter. Just get it. Work hard for the new car, the boat, the house by the lake. Go ahead, spend your times and your dreams and your sweat on that. But here's what you'll find. You'll need more because it'll never satisfy. You'll find that, it wear, that those things wear out. They break. That new car smell don't last forever. Something better will come out, or you'll have to sacrifice your most important relationships in the pursuit of it, and you'll find yourself lonely at the top. Or they'll come with tons of debt that'll weigh you down and rip the enjoyment right from your heart. God brings the better wine. You know the one thing you can take to the grave, the one possession that no one can steal from you? Your word and your honor. Come on, let's have prayer. Do you want to have the real treasure? Learn to be generous like God says and not a selfish hoarder of these treasures. Learn to love people and care for them. Then you will gather the treasure of friendship and family. Do you want to be wealthy and clean? Obey God's word when it comes to money and integrity and business. Read the Proverbs. It's full of investing advice. God brings the better wine. How about power? You want power and Significance, go ahead, spend all your time developing your platform, becoming an influencer. Get to the top of the food train in your industry. Get involved in government so you can make change. Make it all about you. And you know what you'll find? It's lonely at the top. And no one cares about you. The only reason they're interested in you is because they want to take what you've got. Why do you even want that power and influence in the first place? God brings the better wine. Who gets to see the glory of Jesus in this passage? Verse 6, the servants do. The disciples do. Jesus' mama does. Everyone else is oblivious. They don't get to see it. All the important guests, they don't see it. The servants, they get to see it. These six men who receive the honor of being the first disciples, you want to talk about influence? They become apostles. They become the most, potentially the most influential men in history, and they saw things and were given access to things that no one else in human history got. How did they get that influence, significance, and power? In service to Jesus Christ. Why? Jesus brings a better wine. Still unconvinced? Point number three. God lavishly gives us his glory. Verse 11. 
This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, and thus he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And John refers again to these signs, these miracles as signs. He calls them signs. He wants us to see who Jesus is as we look at these signs. The Son of God, the Messiah, come to fix your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is that you are under the wrath of God if you are outside of the bounds of faith in Christ. The hell is a real place where you will suffer in torment, un- unexplainable forever and ever, save the blood of Christ applied to your account. And this man was the one who did it. And Jesus' greatest sign or miracle was bearing the punishment that you deserved on the cross. Matthew tells us in terms of a sign, a miracle, that in verse 20, in chapter 27, that when Jesus was on the cross, that darkness filled the earth from noon to 3 o'clock, and that the earth shook, and tombs were split open, and people were raised from the dead, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two. That the cross was the greatest revelation of Jesus' glory. And he did that to bring you back to God. But let's go back to the wedding for a minute. Let me show you something. Remember verse 4 that we kind of skipped over? Verse 4, he says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. In the book of John, Jesus uses this phrase all the time to refer to his eventual death. Hey, my time's not yet come. He's talking about his death. But I don't think he's talking about his death here. Last night, I went to a wedding, providentially. I was at a wedding. And if you're single and you go to a wedding, what do you think about? Your wedding. What's my wedding going to be like? If you're married and you go to a wedding, what do you think about? Inevitably, at some point, you think back onto your wedding. Jesus is at a wedding. What do you think he's thinking about? His wedding. And what does he say? Not time. Here's another couple reasons why I believe that he was thinking about his wedding. In every other instance, when he said, it's not my time yet, there was a threat. And Jesus said, I'm not going to die right now, it's not my time yet. There's no threat in this passage. There's there's no threat. And this statement was in Jesus' response to making a wedding feast greater. The request made was make the wedding feast greater, and he says, not my time yet. It's not time for my wedding yet. Jesus was thinking about the wedding that would happen one day as a result of his life and death. That one day the Bible teaches that Jesus will come back and he will judge the world. And God will create a new heavens and a new earth out of the old one. Better wine. And at the completion, there will be a wedding. Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And John gives us this little note. He says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the the saints. In this wedding, who's the groom? The Lamb? Why is that title used? The Lamb was the groom. He was the one who was slain. Who was he slain for? The bride. Who's the bride? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Paul's giving advice to husbands. Husbands, love your wife. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up 
for her. Who's the bride? You are the bride. Y'all are the bride. What do you do after a wedding? You feast. You party. Revelation 19.9, the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words. Jesus was saying, it's not time for that yet. Because first, he had to pay for the wedding. And that's what he did on the cross, paid in full. Now let me bring this to a close. Let me show you that the culmination of what this passage is teaching about the glory of God and how God is the better wine. Remember where we started? Who do you think God is and what do you think he wants for you and from you? You want to know what heaven's like? You want to know the full extent of the better wine that God can bring? Then listen to me and look at me. God didn't come simply to free you from your sins and to tolerate you for eternity. He came to marry you and bring you into the sweetest of fellowships with God himself. Jesus came to make you his bride and the bride's price was pricey. The glory of God is much more than turning water into wine. It's turning you into his bride and bringing you into the internal banquet of his love. So what do you believe about God? God is lavish. God brings the better wine. You can look elsewhere for better wine, but you won't find it. Verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed at Canaan and Galilee, and he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. How about you? Where's your faith? Are you convinced? Time, last night we're at this wedding, and and there a time comes whenever the bride and groom exchange vows. And, you know, I don't know if that's just me and sentimental or I like old things, but I, I don't like it when couples write their own vows. Because normally they're really sappy and that kind of thing. And I like the old vows. And they use the old vows. So in the context of your devotion to Jesus Christ, let me ask you this question. These are the vows that the bride gives to her husband. I take thee to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, richer or poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish and to obey till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. Therefore, I pledge myself to you. Church, do you? God brings the better wine. Would you finish me in prayer? Father in heaven, we worship you over the word as we just did. And we come to you in praise.
thanking you for your lavishness and asking us again and asking God that you would help us again, perhaps maybe for the first time to make our vow to you in faith or to remember the vow that we have made. You are lavish when you bring the better wine. Help us to serve you, our king, our husband. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?